0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about one of the most famous con men in history, a bloke I'm sure you've heard of, Charles Ponzi. Uh, He was an Italian fella. He swindled millions and millions of dollars off of people in the US in the early 20th century. And this bloke's con became so famous that, of course, even today, his name is still attached to the style of fraud that he pulled off. We've we've all heard of Ponzi schemes. Although, I have to say this, he wasn't the first uh, first person to put one of these into action. We'll talk about these a little bit later. And certainly, as well, wasn't the last, uh, even after him. So, uh, this bloke, Ponzi, uh, he moved to the US from Italy as a young, uh, penniless immigrant, and he was in in and out of trouble with the law in both the US and Canada until around 1920, when he finally began this famous scheme. He turned a very clever money-making idea into a con that tricked countless people out of hundreds of millions in today's terms. Uh, He went from being desperately poor to ridiculously rich, more or less, overnight, and despite the suspicion that some people had for him and his business dealings, uh, others just continued to to throw money at him for for months and months at his peak, he uh, he lived in a grand mansion. Uh, he had a chauffeur drive him around in a fancy car. He cut about town with his walking stick with a golden handle. He was very famous for that. Um and he was said a lot of a lot of this. I mean, you know, he had this idea that we'll talk about, and the the way that he implemented and managed to fleece people from their money was 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 pretty incredible. But what this story comes down to really, this bloke, he had incredible personal magnetism. He had a, 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 just a, a boatload of charisma, apparently, and and certainly, you know, what else he had was no bloody shortage of people who signed up for his get rich quick scheme. That certainly helped as well. But of course, it all came unstuck stuck eventually, and uh, eventually Ponzi was uh, he was. Finally forced to meet that uh, that tireless and dogged foe of all of us, the consequences of our actions. And uh, we'll get across all of this and, and more today as we talk about talk about Charles Ponzi and, and all the roguery that he got up to. So let's get underway. Let's get underway off and uh, off we go with the story here. We're going all the way back. We're going all the way back here to 1882 to an Italian town called Lugo. And it was there on the 3rd of March, 1882, that young, whoo, here we go, Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo, Telbardo Ponzi—that that's his name, apparently. Fair few bloody names on. imagine the old driver's license there; they wouldn't need a second page. Anyway, uh, of course, as he moved to the United States, became known uh, more popularly as, as Charles Ponzi. But uh, this this young fella, born into a uh, uh, into a formerly wealthy family that had uh, kind of fallen from fortune, and uh, he grew up without all that much money, although sort of had. Maybe, uh, you know, not necessarily delusions of grandeur, but certainly coming from a family that had, that had as I say, fallen from favor, had lost their fortune, uh, may have impacted him quite uh, significantly, uh, you know, as we'll discover, because he always had, always seemed to have quite a, quite a hunger for, uh, for fortune and wealth. Anyway, as a young man, you know, he's grown up, and then eventually he became a, he became a postie. He actually worked as a postal officer for a while, but eventually got him, himself a position at the University of Rome as a student. But rather than study... He actually, instead of doing that, he just cut about with his mates, with all these rich friends, spending what little money he had very freely. And so after four years, he was left not only without any money, but also without a degree. Now, obviously, as I've said, he wanted to seek his fortune. And so what he did, he did what many other people did around this time, around the turn of the century. He decided to travel to to the United States, Uh, young Ponzi. Had heard stories of the wealth that could be made across the Atlantic, and you know, plenty of other Italian immigrants had returned with full pockets, and uh, you know, these these tales of success. And so Ponzi, he decided that he was going to try his luck. In 1903, he took a ship across from uh, from Italy to the U.S. and landed in Boston on the 15th of November. Uh, and because he had gambled uh, on the ship, he'd gambled away uh, all the money that he wanted, that he'd uh, you know been hoping to take with him. Uh, he went ashore with $2.50 to his name. That's all he arrived on the shore of, uh, the shores of the United States with. Uh, that would change, obviously, but uh, not straight away. Not straight away. His, uh, his millions have still got uh, years and years uh, before, they, before they arrive. Uh, there are a couple of adventures he had over the next 16 or 17 years before the days of the Ponzi scheme itself. He took whatever work he could find up and down the east coast of the United States. Uh, for instance, at one point he was uh, working washing dishes at a restaurant he actually used to sleep on the restaurant's floor overnight um and at this restaurant eventually he uh, he, <laughs> he became a waiter he sort of worked his way up to become a waiter after being a dishy but he was then fired as a waiter uh because he started to shortchange customers and nick money out of the till so you'll notice a, a trend begin to emerge with a lot of the stuff that Ponzi did here and you know this is certainly the start of it he, he obviously had his, uh, his hand in the till a little bit more than the uh, the owners like there which is to say at all probably so he lost his job there anyway after a couple of, year, couple of years of, you know, seeking his fortune up and down this East Coast, as I see it in the US, uh, without having too much luck, really, he decided he'd, uh, he's try, he'd try his hand instead in Canada. And so he, he headed up north to Montreal and settled there for a time. And by this stage, by the time he got to Montreal, he could speak English as well as Italian. And he also knew French as well. And by all accounts... He was a charismatic little bugger, as I said, as well. He was a short fellow, but uh, I tell you what, he made up for his lack of height in, in, in an overabundance of, of a very, you know, very likable personality, apparently. And um, as a result, in Montreal, he got a job at a bank. And I mean, you know, you're already thinking, uh-oh, this isn't good. Uh, you know, given this bloke a job <laughs> as, a, uh, as a banker here, it's not going to uh, end too well f- uh, for everyone concerned. But he did get a job at this bank called the Banco Zarossi. This bank had been open to cater for the many Italian immigrants that were coming to Montreal. And of course, he, as he was, you know, being charismatic and good with people, in addition to speaking English, Italian and French, Ponzi was, uh, he was in a great spot here. Uh, apparently, he was quite good at his job and uh, ended up as the bank's manager. So really not a bad result from there in Montreal. However, all was not well at Banco Zorossi, and it actually had very little to do with Ponzi himself, which may surprise you. Uh, Banco Zorossi was attempting to hide the fact that it was more or less going under, the bank had made a series of bad retail, uh, retail real estate investments, uh, and was desperately trying to pay back its debts. And it was doing this by offering high interest terms for depositors. If you deposited your money with Banco zarossi they said you'd earn yourself a, a hefty 6% interest per year which was around twice what the other banks were offering at this stage and of course people attracted by these high interest rates they came and deposited their money hoping to benefit from you know such wild returns and their money was immediately used to service the bank's growing debt this sort of thing is often referred to as robbing Peter to pay Paul and it is the cornerstone of a ponzi scheme but as you can see, it's been around for a long, long time, well before Ponzi. But this is how Banco Zarossi was trying to stay afloat at this stage, by attracting new investments in order to pay off old debts, and it is not working. In fact, the bank did end up going under not, not too long after this, uh, and its owner pocketed as much cash as he could before fleeing to Mexico. So nice one there. But Ponzi, on the other hand, he's, uh, he's back to square one. He now has no job. The bank's gone under. He's got no money and no clear prospects as to what he should do next. So what did he do next? Well, as he's uh, as he's cutting about Montreal trying to find work, he headed to he headed to the premises of a former customer of Banco Zarossi, a, a, a transportation firm, firm I believe it was. And there, after visiting this premises, he found it was empty, right? So he used the opportunity, he snuck into the uh, to the building. He found a, a a checkbook there unguarded, and he wrote himself a check. He forged the director's signature on this check for $423.58. And then immediately after, uh, you know, uh, after having secured these ill-gotten gains, immediately fell back into his habit of just freely spending his money. As a result, he was caught almost immediately by the police who were suspicious, uh, very suspicious of his new spending habits. And he was imprisoned for three years for his fraudulent behavior. So he's, uh, he's, he's been locked in the slammer here. Now, after spending three years in prison for this, uh, you know, a- again, this run with the law here, he was released in 1911. And he moved back to the United States. There, he, uh, he became involved with a different criminal uh, enterprise. Uh, he started to help a, uh, he started to work with a group of people who helped to smuggle illegal Italian immigrants across the Canadian border. Now, clearly, as I said, you're starting to see, see a bit of a pattern here. Uh, Ponzi has no qualms about criminal activity. He clearly didn't have much time for the law. Straight out of prison, straight back to a life of crime. And it wasn't long before he was caught again. This time he was he was uh, caught, arrested and imprisoned in Atlanta prison, where he became friends with another famous fraudster whose name was Charles W. Morse, known as the Ice King. Well, it might be worth an episode that uh, looks into his life because he's a very interesting character indeed. And Ponzi learned a lot from Morse, it seemed, and uh, eventually after he was finally released, he went about trying his hand at all sorts of different business ventures. You know, fraudulent or not, Ponzi was, uh, was determined to start his own business, but None proved very fruitful, uh, and, and and still, the fortune that he had sought for so long was still out of his reach. He worked more, you know, more odd jobs here and there, but never gave up on trying to earn, you know, earn and make himself, say earn, make make himself a ton of money. Uh, in, in Boston in 1918, he also got married. He married a woman whose name was Rose Neko, and uh, he worked with her family's fruit selling business for a time, but again, he never stopped seeking to set up a business of his own. And this is what brings us to the, uh, to the good bit of this story in 1919. When he set himself up with a small office to try to get a business idea off the ground, he started sending proposals by letter uh, to, you know, to contacts and associates that he had both within the United States and across the Atlantic in Europe. And it was one of these letters that kicked off the scheme that would go on to bear his name and swindle millions off of people. Because in in response to one of these letters, he received a reply from a firm in Spain. Now, what their reply was and what the actual business idea was, I don't know, and it's not important. Rather, it was what else was in the envelope from this uh, from this firm in Spain that gave Ponzi his idea. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of an international reply coupon. This is a a, a thing to do with the post, right? It's called an IRC. An IRC is effectively a coupon that can be exchanged for stamps. So you can reply to a letter from overseas. International reply coupon makes sense, right? So I'll give you an example. For instance, let's say that I send you a letter from overseas, from a country you don't live in, and you need to reply to me, but I want to pay for the price of the stamps that you'll need for this reply letter. I don't want you to have to pay for these stamps. You know, I'm sending this letter. I want the reply. I'll pay for the stamps. Now, I can't send you stamps from my country. They're no good. They won't be recognized by the postal service in your country, so I can't send you stamps. And I can't send you money either because because I don't know actually why can't why can't you send money in the post? Is it illegal? I mean I know you shouldn't do it. I've actually never questioned it. Is it so it doesn't get lost or stolen or something? I've got no idea. I, I don't. I, I mean I, I know you're not supposed to send money, but I've actually never, I've never thought about it. So anyway, I don't know why, but you know no good. You can't you can't send money for whatever reason. In any case, I mean if I sent you money from my country, you can't spend it. You know we're in the same spot as the stamps. You'd have to then exchange it. You can't spend it for whatever. It's a hassle, right? So. The IRC exists, the uh, the International Reply Coupon. It exists a way for me to send you something that you can exchange for the stamps that you'll need to write back to me. Very simple. They're still used today. Pretty good system. I mean, these days, pretty good system. Uh, if you need a, uh, a reply from an international uh, correspondent, you buy an IRC, you pop it in the letter with them, and then they can exchange that in their country for the stamps that they'll need to send a reply back to you. So... As I say, good system these days. Back in 1919, Ponzi realised something uh, very important, something that would be the scaffold that he built his entire scheme around. This Spanish company had sent him an IRC that was worth five cents worth of stamps, right? Those those were the stamps that, uh, that Ponzi could then use to send a reply to this Spanish business. But the Spanish company had only spent 30 centavos on this IRC, right? Now, 30 centavos back then was worth four and a half U.S. cents. So, you could buy a bunch of IRCs in Spain, right, spend 30 centavos or four and a half cents on all of them, redeem them in the United States for five cents worth of stamps, and that's an easy 10% profit, just like that. This is a process called arbitrage. It's still, you know, buying something at a slightly lower price in a different region's market than immediately selling it elsewhere. It's still done today. I mean, it's it, 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 it was and still is a perfectly legal thing to do, although these days, obviously done for fractional profits, given the speed of both information and internet, international transactions. But back then, right, things, of course, very different, very different when Ponzi comes across this. Ponzi realized that 10%. Small potatoes. We could do much better than this. Other European economies that had been devastated by the First World War had rampant inflation. They would have even more valuable IRCs, which is to say even less valuable IRCs, right? You understand, because they'd be even cheaper to buy and therefore offer a higher profit margin when they were redeemed for five cents worth of stamps in the United States. So luckily for Ponzi, Italy, the nation of his birth, was one such country that sold IRCs at absurdly low rates, never mind a 10% profit margin on the IRCs here. If you bought an IRC in Italy and redeemed it in the United States, you were up 400%, right? So conceivably, at least, you could buy thousands of Italian IRCs, exchange them for US stamps, then sell the stamps at face value and make a massive profit. So Ponzi has at this point effectively stumbled upon an infinite money glitch, and all that it requires is buying up IRCs in Italy and other countries like that and getting them over to the United States, selling, uh, uh, exchanging them for stamps and then selling the stamps. But believe it or not, right? this infinite money glitch, it's not actually the con. This isn't the grift that became known as the Ponzi scheme, not at all. In fact, IRC arbitrage ended up becoming basically nothing more than the story of that he used to hook investors into the scheme. I'm only telling you about it because I found it a pretty interesting thing to learn about, right? It actually is not completely irrelevant, but not part of the Ponzi scheme in, in a material sense whatsoever. In I mean, just to give you a sense of things, right? In total, Ponzi made millions, millions and millions of millions off of his scheme. But in across this entire period, in total, he ha- he dealt with about $60, worth of IRCs in total. And you're going, wait, what? hang on one second. How could this guy make millions if he only ever got $60 out of the infinite money glitch? Well, exalted listener, as I say, it wasn't the glitch that he exploited. No, instead, that was the idea that he sold to people. He told them about this infinite money glitch that he discovered. He gathered investments that he would apparently put towards these IRCs, towards this glitch, and that's how everyone would make their millions. Ponzi realised he was onto something here, and so he, he gave up all other work and instead poured himself into this new idea, and he started going around seeking investment into his new scheme. At the beginning of 1920, he established a company he called the Securities Exchange Company, and he pitched his infinite money glitch to potential investors. He spun stories about having agents posi- positioned across Europe to, to buy these IRCs, you know, advanced and very secret ways to sell them here in the US uh, in order to make money off of the profit margins. And, you know, despite investors asking how he intended to redeem thousands and thousands of ISCs, I mean, remember, each one was worth five cents. Ponzi didn't didn't reveal his proprietary methods. He he was similarly tight-lipped about his network of European agents. He was very vague about it all, but he said, obviously, it could be done. And in order to kind of, you know, I guess, put up a bit of a uh, smokescreen in front of the logistical challenges, he promised investors absurd returns on their investment. Remember, banks are offering what three to five percent a year? Ponzi offered fifty percent profit on whatever they gave him within ninety, and then later forty-five days. And he made the, he made these promises very cleverly indeed. You know, I said he was going around pitching to investors. He actually he he played a much cleverer hand than that. He didn't go around pushing people into the investment. He instead actually for the most part, seemed quite reluctant to talk about his scheme to people. You know, this only, this only made people even hungrier to hear about it. You know, he's cutting about Boston, meeting with friends and associates. He, he'd make a bleak and tantalising references to this wealth that he expected to come into, but then would kind of clam up about, about it, would only talk about it if he was pressed. And, you know, he, he even put together other elaborate cons, like he'd abruptly head out of the cafes that he'd meet his friends in, saying pr- pretending he had meetings with big investors and the like, all to just generate interest. And after he hooked people, he'd explain this this IRC scheme. He would, you know, con them into believing that he had some secret way of managing the volume. Because again, the profits were there. I mean, you you could buy an IRC in Italy and exchange it in the United States and you know make a big profit in percentage terms. It's just that it was a small profit in real terms because it was only a couple of cents. But he convinced people that he had this way to do it on a on a large scale and People started falling for it. I mean, not many to begin with. To be honest, you know, it wasn't too many. But Ponzi he'd talk about his I.R.C. scheme, convince people as to how profit it would be, offer them these, you know, too good to be too true, too good to be true terms—the fifty percent interest on all investments—and he did manage to get a couple of investors. Started off small enough, as I say, in relative terms. Within a month, he had raised uh, he'd raised around eighteen hundred U.S. dollars from eighteen investors, so about hundred bucks each. And he continued to seek out more and more investors after this first round had come in. But then, right, and here's where the Ponzi scheme really begins. Because when it came time to pay the original investors, right, according to the terms that they'd agreed on, this 50% it's ridiculous rate of rate of return, Ponzi did so more than happily. People couldn't believe it. This Ponzi fellow with his IRCs, he was as good as his word. He's paid them back 50% interest on these short-term investments. They're giving him a hundred bucks. He's given them back 150 in, in in three months or in six weeks. It's unbelievable. People cannot believe that this bloke is making this kind of money and they're thinking bloody hell, he obviously knows something that we don't, and the investments start to pour in thick and fast, right? I mean, as I say, at this point, banks are paying 5% a year on deposits, and here's Ponzi paying 50% in. Weeks. Now, how was he doing it? It wasn't with the IRCs. We've already talked about that. I mean, as as I said before, he only ever used about sixty dollars worth of uh, worth of IRCs. This his entire uh, this the entire scheme continued. So, how was he making this? Where was he pulling this fifty percent return on all of these investments from? Well, you may have already figured it out, because the the backbone of a Ponzi scheme, right? This is the way that they operate. He used the money from new investors to pay the old ones simple as that right someone comes they give him a hundred bucks and then you know the next hundred bucks he gets off the next person he takes fifty dollars out of that to pay the first investor off the uh their hundred plus the 150 that's uh, that's come back in all of a sudden he looks like a genius because he's paid these people back their money all the while behind the scene it's the scenes it's just a it's a big house of cards. It's not built on anything, right? It's just moving money around. No money is actually being made. It's just money that's being moved in from new investors, and that is a Ponzi scheme. But people fell for it. It made him seem legitimate that he was able to pay out this money straight away after the you know the terms of the agreement and at such exorbitant interest rates. It made him seem like he was making money hand over fist with these investments. Had been given, and of course, this then had the effect. Of making him seem like he was the sort of person you'd want to give more money to. And so as more money poured, you know, started pouring in not too long after this entire scheme kicked off, right? He goes to even greater lengths to seem like a reputable and trustworthy and reliable businessman. He moves into new offices, he hires a bunch of agents to seek out more investments, and, and the whole thing is just looking react, it's looking so slick and, and spick and span, right? And the scheme began to become so popular and successful, that it spread out of Boston, out of Massachusetts, across New England, and even further south down towards New Jersey. From February to March, just to give you a bit of a context of how quickly this thing grew, right? From February, February to March, remember he started in January. February to March, he went from $5,000 worth of investments to $25,000 worth of investments. And from May to June, he went from $420,000 worth of investments to $2.5 million. People could not get enough of this little bloke in his financial wizardry. He was making money like you wouldn't believe, offering them massive returns on their money and living up to this promise that he'd made to make them rich. But of course, as I say, he wasn't actually making any money at all. I mean, remember, he only ever bought, what, 60, 60 bucks worth of IRCs. All he did was used new money to pay out older investors, robbing Peter to pay Paul. This is the classic Ponzi scheme, although, as I say, not the original I mentioned. It's probably worth noting at this point, um, a couple of people had done schemes like this before, although not for the outrageous amounts that Ponzi ended up doing it. Uh, The first reliable historical record we have of a Ponzi scheme uh, happened in Bavaria, in the back half of the 19th century, a woman whose name was Adela Spitzeder, she set up the Spitzedische Privatbank, uh, which did exactly this, although I think the rate of return shelf was something like 7 or 10%. And uh, similarly, there was a woman whose name was Sarah Howe. She, does, she set up a bank for unmarried women in America. And, uh, and she used it to operate, again, another smaller Ponzi scheme, much lower rates of return between 7 between and 10%. Uh, but, but, you know, eventually they came unstuck as well. We'll talk about exactly why in a little bit. But uh, uh, Ponzi, even though the scheme is named after him, certainly the idea of, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul is, is not a new one. It's just it was put to a whole new scale under this bloke Ponzi. Um, anyway, so these promises, right, that he made to, uh, to people to return a 50% interest on their investments, right? These promises that he made were by and large kept. And this is the reason that the the scheme seemed so profitable and seemed so reliable is that people were, and the reason um, there's some hesitancy in my voice here, there's hesitancy in my voice, which you'll understand in just a second. People were coming back and they were getting back not just the principal, but also the interest that was promised to them. But people weren't actually, here's the thing, right? Ponzi was certainly very able, certainly very willing to give people back their money when when they asked for it, but he took advantage of the fact that no one really wanted to. I mean, imagine this, right? Imagine this. You've gone to Ponzi, you give him 1000 bucks. And then a month and a half later, he comes back and he's ready to give you. I mean, he's got it in his hand. He's got the he's got 100 he's got 1500 bucks ready to give you just as promised. You gave him 1000, he gives you back 1500 in in a month and a half. Easy job's done, right? But do you actually take the money off him? No, of course you bloody don't. Absolutely not. You reinvest it because in six more weeks, you reinvest that, you know, 1500 bucks, and he's going to come back to you with 2250 even more. You're going to be making more and more money. And I mean, bloody hell, you might as well give him more money on top of the original uh, put stuff that you put in invested, right? Because this bloke is obviously onto a good thing. So much of the time, right, because people were encouraged to reinvest and because these returns were so ridiculous... Most people very happily never actually took money out of the scheme, they just reinvested it and Ponzi rarely actually had to pay people out while the scheme was taking off. He could continue to attract more and more investors as well as re-hooking old ones, all of whom are going about saying, oh, this bloke's a genius, he's, he's making me money like he wouldn't believe. Now, of course, a system like this is completely unsustainable. It needs and effectively infinite amount of money and new investors to sustain itself. And, you know, because Ponzi and his $60 worth of stamps aren't going to cover these investments, are they? Certainly not. No, there is no economical viability to a Ponzi scheme. It is instead only the appearance of viability, the appearance appearance of financial brilliance, of, of wealth and prosperity, the appearance of your investment being safe and reliable and, and available to you at any at any point, right, if you do want to cash out. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that while not many people did, some people did cash out. For those people who actually did, Ponzi happily handed over their money, including the 50% interest, because he knew it only strengthened the appearance of legitimacy of the whole scheme. When you heard stories and saw saw people walking away from Ponzi with their money intact, it made people feel safe and it made people keep their money with him, right? Meanwhile, Ponzi he's finally living this lavish life of luxury that he desired he bought a huge mansion he bought controlling stakes in banks he bought a wine company a pasta company he's driven everywhere this fan in this fancy new car he's got a cane with a gold uh, with a gold handle on it and he is he, he, he is finally living this this upper crust, well-heeled, you know, opulent lifestyle, finally rubbing shoulders all the rich and famous. He's the talk of the town. He's all over the papers. People can't get enough of him. They can't believe this scheme. You know, they all want to know his secrets, whatever else. But he is appearing to make just infinite, infinite money as he takes more and more investments, he uses that to service the old debts. And again, the money just kept pouring in because people had been uh, people been taken up. And, and I'll say this as well. The money... Came in from, from all quarters, right? I mean, Ponzi, he was a villain and a swindler. He was a crook and a scoundrel. But I'll tell you this, he was an equal opportunity con man because he took money from anyone and everyone, from the absurdly wealthy wealthy to the to the working class, from priests to paper boys, he would rip off anyone. He took anyone's money. Doesn't matter where what walk of their life they came from, he was quite happy to fleece you. Of course, not everyone was taken in. I mean, there were there were plenty of people who did invest, but plenty of other people were very suspicious of this bloke and his astronomical financial fortunes. I mean, a good rule of thumb is, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And there were quite a number of people who weren't falling for it. Pons in his stories, as I say, they are splashed all over the papers. Um, the media is seemingly quite divided on the bloke in his scheme. Some newspapers were critical and, and suspicious and and some were supportive and you know sung his praises and talked about how you know so many people have made so much money off and whatever else and uh it was interesting though because the criticism didn't last very long and in, in a lot of the papers um there was one writer there was a journal who suggested that ponzi must be doing something illegal uh to be making so much money he said there's no way that ponzi could be making this much money through legal means and ponzi took him to court and sued him for, you know, for is it libel or libel? I should have looked up how to pronounce it. Slander, defamation, whatever it is, right? Sued him and won half a million dollars in damages. So that certainly cooled the heels off of other critics who didn't want the pants sued off of them as well and so didn't question him as fiercely. But as I say, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, there were were plenty of other newspapers who were well and truly in support of the bloke. There was one that wrote this gushing article about Ponzi and his scheme and how brilliant it was. And, And best of all, this is the funniest thing about this article, right? The article ran on the same page as an ad for a bank that was offering a 5% annual return on investments. The same page, this this bank is going, oh, 5% annual return, as this article that's saying 50% in 45 days. Unbelievable. Anyway, this article, interestingly, it, um, of course, prompted even more investors to flock to Ponzi's offices, right, as, as they read it and like, oh, I'm going to go and get rich quick just like everyone else. But, 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 it also brought the attention of the Massachusetts authorities as well, in addition to some other private financial investigators who started to take an interest in Ponzi's financial affairs. And these investigators revealed some very interesting facts indeed, especially after having spoken to the United States Post Office. The Post Office told these investigators, they told them very clearly, that there were no notable tradings of any IRCs anywhere within the US. You know, They they, they weren't being bought and sold at at a higher rate than, than usual, right? But on top of this, the post office pointed out that if Ponzi actually had wanted to take advantage of this infinite money glitch that he discovered and pay people out properly with it, right, he would have had to have bought and sold over 50,000 IRCs just to pay off the initial 18 investors. So the first 18 people that came to him with that uh, with the $1,800, that would require buying and selling 50,000 of those coupons. And if you need over 50,000 to cover the investments of just 1,800 bucks, imagine how many you'd need when you're taking in $250,000 a day. I mean, you don't have to imagine. I'll tell you, it's around 160 million. That's the estimate. A hundred and 60 million ircs would have been required buying and selling these little five cent coupons right would have been required to cover all of the investments that ponzi had at his uh, you know all of the money that was tied up with him uh, at his schemes peak right and just to put things put things in perspective here when we're talking about 160 million of these things right there were only 27,000 of them in circulation in total so Ponzi's going about selling people this cock and bull story about infinite money glitch, which again, as we've said, would technically work, right? Assuming that you're happy to make a, you know, absolutely tiny profit every time you do it. But again, if there were enough and you could trade them fast enough, yes, I guess it would work. Obviously, that that loophole has been fixed these days. But in real terms, right, the logistics involved in buying and selling 160 million five cent coupons, even if they existed, I mean, there's no way it could be feasibly done. Think about the people you'd have to hire to do this, the amount of time it would take. The the, the I mean, you're having to sell millions of doll- millions of dollars of stamps to people. I mean. Once this stuff started to come out, once these investigators and these journalists started to make their, uh, you know, their findings known, uh people are starting to wise up to Ponzi's grift here. And when these findings, as I say, were published in the newspapers, people made a run on Ponzi's security exchange company. They wanted their money out of that thing because they thought, bloody hell, this is all going to go belly up and I don't want to be caught when it does. But you know what Ponzi did? There was a mad rush of people went down to his offices, queuing, queuing round the block, right, wanting to get their money out of uh, out of his company. What did Ponzi do? He paid them out. He paid them out all the people that wanted to withdraw their investments. Again, giving all the appearance of confidence and reliability with his scheme, he paid them out. And as he did so, he bought food and drink and and, and distributed to the people who were waiting in the queue, chatting, laughing with them, going around talking. I oh, was so asking why they wanted to bring it out, talking about it, that sort of you know just again. Working the charm, handing out the, you know, the coffee and the sandwiches and the donuts and as people are waiting. And sure enough, people start to lose their nerve. Why wasn't he panicking? Why, are you know, all these people that are cashing out, are they the fools? Are they the fools to, to, to be turning their backs on the hefty returns that Ponzi is offering? This bloke's here, he's handing out food and drink, he's, t- he's chatting with us all. He should be pulling his hair out if this whole thing is, uh, you know, is about to come tumbling down, but it wasn't. And as a result, of course, right, despite, I mean, he did pay out a lot of money, he paid about $2 million in the wake of this article of, of, of these revelations coming out, right? But Ponzi held on to most of the money that his investors had, had, had given him. And most of these investors, they stuck with him. Even people in the queue, they walked away and said, oh, you know what, he's got it. He's probably, it's, it's probably all right. And so while there were some lucky people that they, they did, they cut and run, they got their money out of there, many other people were, were fooled. They were hoodwinked by the calm charismatic confidence of charles ponzi as these uh these revelations came to light he's just he, he weathered the storm paid out the people who wanted it and lots of people were like actually you know what there's probably nothing to worry about here but of course there was very much something to worry about here and unfortunately for ponzi the government began to take a renewed interest in ponzi and his affairs as we head into july and august now and uh you know as the as they began to uh start to look into some of his bookkeeping, start to, you know, maybe audit the bloke and his company a little bit. They found that his systems were, uh, well, it mainly involved writing people's names on index cards. Ponzi hardly had any records at all and obviously couldn't account for all the money that was supposed to have been managed by his securities exchange company. This whole thing was so slapdash. And, of course, the lack of a real paper trail obviously helped to hide the fraudulent nature of the whole scheme. And at this point, right, with this renewed public and government interest and the suspicion that was mounting, Ponzi made a grievous error, although he wasn't to know it. He wasn't to know it when he did this. He hired a publicist. He hired a publicist in an, in an effort to manage and turn around the public opinion, which he worried would turn on him properly. And this bloke, this publicist, named of, uh, William McMasters. McMasters first advised Ponzi to cooperate with the government investigations, which Ponzi, Ponzi did. Again, he wanted to appear legitimate. He wanted to peer above board. But as McMaster's learnt more about Ponzi and his scheme and investigated further, I mean, as someone who was hired by the bloke, things didn't break the way that Ponzi might have hoped when hiring a publicist. Because rather than try to turn things around, McMaster realised that this bloke was up to no good. He realised he was a a, a crook and a fraud and a swindler and, and very likely a criminal. And McMaster's ended up coming out publicly and announced Ponzi to be, in his words, hopelessly insolvent. McMaster's re- uh, revealed to the world that Ponzi's claims to have, you know, have seven million dollars in liquid cash ready to pay out at a moment's notice, were not only false, but that Ponzi was actually in debt to the tune of two million dollars, not including the interest that he'd accrued on these debts, which would take it up to about four and a half million. So he had no liquid cash. He had about four million tied up in assets, the house and whatever else, right? And he was in debt to the tune of four and a half million bucks. Now, when Mcmasters came out with this, not the sort of thing you want your publicists to do on the on you know, the best of days here, but Mcmasters he came out with all this all this news, and there is another run on the securities exchange company. As more people, they go, nah, you know what? This time, I'm definitely getting my money up. Not, I'm not, I'm not taking no for an answer. And again, Ponzi, he tried to pay him out, but now he's running into trouble. He had been bailing himself out. You remember I said before that he bought some controlling stakes in, in different banks. I think between four and five, roughly five banks, I think, he was he was he he had heavy, heavy investments in. And he had been more or less forcing these banks that, as I said, he had a controlling stake in to give him loans, exorbitant loans, right? But you remember that I said that a Ponzi scheme needs an infinite amount of new money to sustain itself. Well, even these loans that he was giving himself uh, from the banks that he controlled, even they weren't enough to inject enough money into this Ponzi scheme to keep it going. And the piper had finally arrived. Doesn't matter how many times you rob Peter to pay Paul, you can't rob Paul to pay the piper. Ponzi attempted to defend himself. He claimed that he still had great secrets about the, you know, the uh, the ICR scheme that he still claimed was running smoothly and effectively. Still said he had all this money. He refused to tell anyone how he was making it, of course. he. I mean, there were two reasons for this. One, he claimed that the method for, you know, the money-making that he had was proprietary secret information. It was, you know, part of his business and he wasn't going to tell anyone. And the second reason was that he wasn't bloody doing it in the first place and so he couldn't tell them, could he? Anyway. It all came unstuck for Ponzi after this government and media attention in August. The, the authorities they cut off his supply of money by seizing the banks that he controlled. They just grabbed them. They froze his assets and uh, and said that any or any uh, any checks that had uh, been written by Ponzi were not to be cashed. So they cut off his uh, cut off his supply of any kind of money. And at the same time, this government audit went public and revealed that Ponzi was indeed insolvent. I mean, the government initially estimated that he was, in, that he was about three million dollars in debt and then revised that figure up to $7 million in debt. And on top of that, if that weren't enough, this all happened within the space of a couple of, uh, a couple of days as well, a newspaper right, published an article re- revealing Ponzi's criminal past, complete with a Canadian mugshot and everything, and this was the end for Ponzi. He had no money. He'd finally been revealed for the con man, the criminal that he was, and the whole scheme was blown wide open and as a result he surrendered to the federal authorities on the 30th of august 1920 he had made millions millions and millions in just over half a year but finally came unstuck because as we know ponzi schemes are ultimately unsustainable the people who had invested in these schemes these poor uh these poor people have been taken advantage of there was an effort to try to you know return as much of their money as possible but obviously much of it did, did Completely disappeared in, in in smoke. Been spent on stuff, whatever else. Uh, for the most part, on average, people got about thirty cents to the dollar uh, for their investment. So, you know, I was talking before if you went to Ponzi with a thousand bucks, well, you could roughly expect to get at three hundred back, not the fifteen hundred that he promised. And this was a result of the people, you know, "quote unquote" reinvesting in this uh, in this scheme, and eventually being absolutely fleeced. And you know, most people had their pants pulled down and, and hardly saw any of the money that they uh, returned. I mean, banks went under. Multiple banks went under because of this bloke and 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 the scheme that he uh, that he that he obviously. I mean, I was going to say pulled off, but he didn't really pull it off, did he? But uh, you know, just the common common people, you know, ordinary people like you and me who'd been swindled, been conned by this bloke, uh, they lost. I'm not going to say lost it all. I mean, some of them did, but for the most part, I mean, a minus seventy percent on your investment is not really what you're looking for when you start to 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 get into you know into financial affairs. Anyway. Ponzi, as I say, surrendered himself. He was arrested. He was charged and he pled guilty to 86 counts of mail fraud for which he was sentenced. Now, I'll just remind you here, right, As before we get to the sentencing here, this bloke defrauded people of about 20 million bucks in those days. Today, just under 200 million by today's standards, might have been more. He was sentenced after having fleeced that much money from people to five years. Five years total was his federal sentence for having ripped off people to the tune of around 200 million, maybe more, 200 million, right? And he only served three and a half. He was released from federal prison early before his full sentence had even been served. So interesting idea of justice there. But as soon as he was released, here's what's interesting. As soon as he was released, he was arrested again and charged once more, this time with 22 counts of larceny in the state of Massachusetts. He had been arrested, charged, and tried by the federal government, but now it was Massachusetts that was coming after. Now, Ponzi, he argued, he said, no, this is double jeopardy. I'm being tried twice for the same crime here. And he took his argument all the way to the US Supreme Court before it was ruled that he could, after all, stand trial at a state level. He was faced with, first of all, faced with different charges, the US Supreme Court argued. And secondly, he'd made a plea bargain with the federal authorities that didn't affect state law enforcement. It was an interesting case. Anyway, he stood trial again, uh, firstly, for 10 of the 22 counts of larceny. And this time he didn't plead guilty. He fought. But as he. You know, couldn't afford a lawyer. He represented himself. And wouldn't you know it, this charismatic bastard, he managed to talk the jury out of the conviction. He was acquitted. Unbelievable. He blasted with them with the charm and he managed to get himself out of this first trial unscathed. He was acquitted, right, on the first 10 charges. But he still had more charges to fight through. There was a second trial. This resulted in a hung jury. The third trial, finally, the final counts of, of last night he was charged with, They're the ones that landed him back in prison, this time for seven to nine years. But even then, the story's still not finished. It doesn't end because he was released at one point on bail, right, for a court appeal. And when released on bail for this court appearance, he escaped and fled. He fled south to Florida. And if you'll believe it, there he began another con, this time trying to cash in on the Florida land boom by selling tr- these the tiny little tracts of, sc- of of swampland with once again absurd rates of uh, of uh, return on these investments he was promising people 200% on the money that they put down and it didn't work this time he was arrested he was charged once again 1926 in florida but twist He escaped while on bail. You wouldn't expect that. This bloke, he slipped through their fingers again. He shaved his head. He grew a moustache. He went down the docks and attempted to get on a ship that would take him back to Italy. But he made the mistake of confiding in someone on that ship who he really was. They alerted the authorities. And once again, he was caught and taken into custody, this time for good. He was returned to Massachusetts and it was there that he spent another seven years in prison serving out his sentence as it had been handed down uh, You know, after he was released from federal prison. When he was finally released in Massachusetts in 1934, it wasn't the end of his adventures because the moment he set foot outside the prison, he was deported. He had lived in the United States for years, both as a free man and as a, as a prisoner, but he'd never been made a citizen. And so as soon as he was released from, uh, from this prison in Massachusetts, he was deported back to Italy. Right? He was sent back to Italy. His wife divorced him after this, uh, this deportation. And from there, to be honest, we're not actually 100% sure what happened to him. He did go back to Italy, that's for sure. But there are a couple of different stories as to what happened. One of them, a bit more fanciful, perhaps the less believable of the two. Um. Uh. this one says that he conned himself into a high-ranking financial position uh, in Mussolini's government. I mean, yeah, of course he did, uh, but then was discovered as a fraud and fled to Brazil as a result. Another story, which seems to be a bit, a bit better research based on what I saw, Um. Uh, says that he got a job with an Italian airline that transported uh, supplies between Italy and Brazil, but then the Allies shut down um, this airline with the outbreak of the Second World War. Ponzi was stuck in Brazil. And uh, regardless of how he got there, why he was there, he did end up uh, living the, the final years of his life in, uh, in Brazil. It was there that he worked as a translator. But uh, unfortunately for this bloke, his health was failing. And in 1941, he had a heart attack that left him very unwell indeed. And on top of that, his eyesight began to fade until by 1948, he was effectively completely blind. And uh, eventually, he was admitted into a charity hospital in Rio de Janeiro. And it was there that he passed away. On the 18th of January in 1949. Now, while Ponzi didn't invent the Ponzi scheme, his use of it was so famous and so bloody huge, of course, that it's been forever associated with him thanks to the enormous coverage and controversy it generated at the time and of course the the name lives on. But before and after Ponzi and his scheme Schemes like this have been used to fleece millions from people by the, you know, the women I talked about before, Adela Spitzeder and and, and Sarah Howe, by a bloke named William Five Hundred and Twenty Percent Miller, uh, who later, after being released from prison, uh, went uh, back on the straight and narrow and uh, became known as Honest Bill instead um miller may have actually inspired ponzi that that's not been properly confirmed but the exploits of miller and his ponzi scheme may have actually had some influence on uh, on ponzi we've talked about here but even you know in in the modern era all the way through to the 70s the swedish ivar kruger the russian company mmm in the 90s and of course the biggest fraudster in history bernie madoff whose ponzi scheme and it was just an enormous ponzi scheme swindled 65 billion dollars out of people. But Ponzi remains, at least, as and perhaps more famous than all of these people. And, of course, even today, the scheme that he put into practice, it still bears his name. But he didn't seem to have regretted it, however, at any point. Because in the time just before his death, he did one last interview with an American reporter, and here's what he said. Without malice aforethought, I'd given them the best show that was ever staged in their territory since the landing of the Pilgrims. It was easily worth 15 million bucks to watch me put the thing over. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Charles Ponzi, and I mean, you know, as I say, we've all heard of Ponzi schemes. We've all got some kind of vague understanding of what they are. But now, oh, now you can impress your friends and bamboozle your enemies with your in-depth knowledge of uh, of, uh, of Ponzi and, his, and and the scheme that he got up to and. Uh, you also get to do... You also now can do that. Well, actually, they're not named after him because he invented them, blah, blah, blah. So just the gift that keeps on giving here, Half-House History, helping people say, well, actually, around the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. All the normal, boring housekeeping stuff coming your way right now, of course. Half-House History.net, contact form there if you want to get in touch and suggest a topic uh, for the show. Uh, there's still some merch, a handful of T-shirts remaining. Uh, new merch should be... Uh, I, I'm still aiming for before the end of the year. We'll see how we go with that. Um, and if you want to support the show financially... Uh, I can promise you it's not a Ponzi scheme. Uh, I make no promises about you getting any money back from it. It's it's very much a one-way system. You put the money in. I guess the content comes out, I suppose, but you don't get 150% worth of the... Co- I mean, it's not i I'm being very upfront about the fact that I'm fleecing people with Patreon. So if you're you you're know if you're one of... I mean, sorry. <clears throat> I want to thank the people who are so generous as to support me on Patreon, of course. It's not fleecing, it's just them very generously supporting a content creator that they uh, they enjoy so from the bottom of my heart thank you very much sucker i mean uh, I was, uh, suckers is not what i meant to say thank you so much exalted patrons um that's that for this episode of half a sister we'll see you back here for more nonsense next week but until then of course leaving you we've talked a lot about fraud and uh, and con men and and uh, all sorts of stuff like that today and terrible palsy on reddit has a fraud related question about a certain con man here that you may have heard of terrible palsy asks Who was Sigmund, and why was he such a fraud?